What's up, everybody? It's another edition of Free Association on the Sportsnet Podcast Network. I am JD Bunkus from my just disgusting office. I got to be honest, like I have not like there's all these people that are saying that they're cleaning and that they're being really, really on top of it. And my office is basically just like Amazon boxes that are half opened on the floor. Some things I don't even remember what I ordered. Just disgusting. It's a mess in here. Donovan Bennett. I'm guessing that your world is nothing like mine, that your place is pristine other than the child's area. Everywhere is the child's area. Okay. That's <laughs> what happens when you have a child. That's fair. I saw you had a nice post today on Twitter of your son ghostwriting for you. Your kid is really cute. Is this kind of going to be your new angle is like turning your kid into the face of Generation Q because that corner is still available. So Chris Paul has little P, little Chris P. Yeah. His son and I mean obviously Steph Curry has Riley who is a celebrity herself and, and now Cannon. Two, uh Cannon, yeah, who's just a a, a tank. Um like Cannon looks like he should be PJ Tucker's son. He's like a fullback, not a point guard. And Ryan, his beautiful daughter in between. But there hasn't been a media member to like own the this is my kid that's just gonna take over the spotlight and so Ivanka Osmak was probably gonna beat me to that place because her kids and she just welcomed a second one into the world beautiful boy um are beautiful and mine is a Tasmanian devil um but if I can make that my brand I surely will I think it's a good brand for you like I said your kid is really cute <laughs> you have a great looking kid and yeah, I would just imagine. So yeah, you're you're really out and about. And I know that you put a lot of time into your family life as well. Like you're a big time family guy. But how has this changed your perspective, if anything? Like I know we talked about this a little bit last time, just in terms of your appreciation for your wife. But have you learned anything about yourself as a dad from spending extra time just with your kid and always sharing that same space? So I had a quote that I would often recite to my wife and to my mother just to anyone who was in my vicinity when i felt it and i would often say this at a grocery store at an amusement park at a movie theater not my kid i would see kids doing bad things and i'll just look no judgment like listen your child you want to raise them however you want sounds like judgment is coming but i would say no 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 no, it's 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 not judgment it's a personal (laughs) choice yeah that my kid will not do whatever behavior like x behavior throw themselves on the ground and roll around in the aisle three of no frills and so i still do have some not my kids standards but my standards are rapidly dropping like uh, the things that i will allow him to get away with just because i'm trying to bide the time in between naps is astonishing and this is the real remember the secret remember when that was a thing like everyone was you know reading the book and watching the dvd at the time or whatever and now we've all forgotten like everything that was was said in it other than like you know think positively basically is the end like that was it this is the secret i found anyways to parenting at least the age that i'm at you're basically penalty killing is what you're doing you're (laughs) treading water you are just trying to get from waking up in the morning to the next meal or nap or bath then placate them keep them alive to the next nap then placate them keep them alive to they 
when they go to bed and hopefully they sleep throughout the night if you're lucky to have won the lottery to have one of those children and thus far i am you're just penalty killing trying to block shots clearing the puck out of the zone short shifts like i gotta get off the ice mom jump over the boards you got this turn like that's basically what parenting is and so i'm now a bigger part of special teams because i'm home more that's that's pretty much it man i actually have a tear running down the one side of it as i was laughing so hard because yeah, I think that's an awesome well, one. That's an awesome analogy. But yeah, you're you're just pl- trying to play a tight road game, right? Like you're just trying to keep the score nice and level so that, you know, once it gets later into the game, that things can work out in your favor. This is great. I love it. I absolutely love it. As a guy who does not have kids and who has been, yeah, basically by himself, I can't imagine this added responsibility, but I'm glad to hear that you guys are doing well. We got some stuff today on our show. We want to talk about Vince Carter. You mentioned it to me today. You had a good tweet. You asked people who how they feel about Vince's legacy in the city. I'm sure we'll ask that of Howard Beck today, but we'll discuss it along with ourselves. Um, But yeah, we got a jam-packed edition of Free Association today, and we've also got Howard Beck, who we shouldn't make wait any longer. Yeah, let's bring on Howard Beck. And Howard, as uh, he joins us, and and our listeners know him well, senior basketball reporter for Bleach Report, also the host of the Full 48 podcast, podcast with Howard Beck. You know you're the real deal when your name is in the title of the podcast. But Howard, during these times, I feel like whether you're talking to a guest on a show like this or just seeing someone in real life, the first and only question to start is how are you doing, right? And so how are you doing both personally and professionally dealing with what seems to be our new normal? Yeah, no, thanks for asking, guys. Hope all's well with you too. And yeah, I'm fine. Um, My family and I are fine hunkered down here in Brooklyn doing very little leaving of the apartment, going out occasionally to take a walk, get some fresh air, go get groceries, whatever. And so even as much as New York is the hotspot for the virus, you know, you don't really see it, feel it on a daily basis that this is a crisis. Um, You see it and feel it in in the absence of life and just in walking the streets. And I mean that obviously figuratively, you walk the streets and it's just you know, you're used to the bustle of New York and the neighborhood's pretty quiet. There are people out walking, but, you know, very few cars and obviously everything is closed. And so there's just that eerie feeling. And that's the constant reminder that things are not normal. But the crisis itself, in terms of number of infections daily, number of deaths daily, is staggering to me as, as to you guys looking at the numbers every day. But you don't feel it directly because it is, it's, you know, contained to you know, the hospitals where they're dealing with this and, and, you know, obviously a lot of families who are dealing with it, but um, yeah, it's weird to be in the midst of the, you know, the biggest location for this crisis and yet feel insulated from it on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, I'm fine. Like I have no complaints. I'm, I'm able to work from home, which I do a lot anyway, still doing a couple podcasts a week, working on a long-term story. And yeah, you know, we're all trying to stave off cabin fever a little bit, but I'm, you know, we're fine. No complaints. I'm happy to be healthy and, and my family to be healthy. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how long this thing lasts. Yeah. It is this weird balance of, you know, you feel normal at one moment, you feel fine at one moment you feel, yeah, it's just, I, I find it's been a roller coaster for a lot of people and I'm grateful to be happy and healthy as well. And for the most part, this is all good and family happy and safe as well. But yeah, there's just some, there's some oddities, like you said, and it is overwhelming sometimes, I find, to be on social media, to scroll through your Twitter, and what used to be this place where the annoyance was maybe people constantly trying to pick Twitter fights, 
to just, you know, numbers and overwhelming numbers and numbers that continue to escalate. And Donna and I spent the last podcast, we were just talking about acclimating ourselves and how this is going to change the business, what we think the fallout is going to be moving forward. But what I'm, I'm most curious when it comes to a guy like you who does these long-term projects and has to be able to kind of stay in touch with people from the league and different players and personnel about what's going to be happening moving forward is... Has this made it more difficult just because there is that qualifier of always, hey, how are you doing? You don't want to make it seem insensitive. Or have you found that it's been more because there's this now common footing between writers, athletes, and executives, everybody, that we're all kind of having the shared experience that maybe things have eased in terms of communication a little bit? Yeah, I mean, on a fundamental, just practical level, a lot of my NBA conversations are in person in a normal season, right? Like I, I live mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. I'm a, a mile and a half from Barclays Center and a, you know, 30 minute subway ride from the garden and a normal season. I'm, I'm trying to see as many people as I can. I don't have to be at all the games. Obviously I'm not a beat writer anymore, but you know, contact is important. Making the rounds is important and seeing people pregame. We all, you know, there's a kind of informal schmooze session, you know, every pregame of every NBA game where you're on the sidelines or baseline talking to coaches and GMs and scouts and other media. And so you, you miss some of that just as a social matter, but also as just part of the job. That's how I make the rounds. Now, obviously I can email and text and other ways of, of getting in, in touch with people. That's That's certainly the case. But there's an extra barrier now. And so, you know, that's different. And then, you know, I think just for me, you know, the stories that I've been doing the last several years for Bleacher Report, which have been more either trend type pieces or noticing some some evolving storyline in the course of a season, right? It could be something going on with the team. I, I like doing relationship stories, you know, player, player, coach, player, whatever. Anything that's kind of giving us an insight into like how these people work, how they think and how that affects what we see on the court, because I think the relationships are the key to all of this. We can talk basketball X's and O's till, you know, till the sun goes down, but it's, you know, the NBA is about human, human interactions. And that's what I find fascinating. And so, so much of the, you know, what we call the narratives, and I use it in a positive sense, not the pejorative sense, the narratives have just kind of disappeared because there's no season to talk about. And so there's nothing new, there's no wrinkles, no new feuds, rivalries, whatever, just just the general reaction on a week-to-week basis to what's going on, on on the court fuels story ideas. And so there's nothing of that to seize on right now. And in terms of how the NBA is dealing with the pandemic, there's a limit to how much of that you can really write about. You know, there's a limit to how many times you can ask somebody how you're passing the time or how you're staying engaged or how you're staying in shape or how teams are, are, are working. Like, there's just not there's not a ton there. Everybody's mostly in a holding pattern. So there's, you know, some incremental news here and there about, you know, floating the idea of playing in the bubble or, you know, when could the season start and what would it look like? And obviously there's, you know, some serious money issues, but I, you know, that those stories are the, the kind of like the business of the league. I don't do much. I don't dabble much in these days. So it's more a matter of trying to find like, what else is there still to write about and talk about that's meaningful a lot of the content we've seen the last several weeks from everywhere, all outlets, has been a lot of very creative, let's find ways to recontextualize this season or the top five, you know, Timberwolves of all time. The, you know, let's create a, a virtual Knicks Hall of Fame. Let's, you know, all of that's great. Like it's keeping fans engaged and it's tapping into that hunger that's out there for NBA content. But it is, it's, these are more like manufactured stories, right? Come up with the premise 
and then do what you can to like tap into a season, a memory, a play, a list of players, whatever. And that's the way that sports media is kind of continuing to propel itself through this in the absence of anything new. The interesting thing, though, is we can't continue to do that until July or whenever this is going to be. <laughs> We're going to run out of ideas. Yeah, top five Timberwolves of all time sure sounds great to me. Like, uh. Well, I, I mean, I just the, the NBA 2K tournament was cool until like two games, and then we're like, these guys aren't saying that much. Two and games. Ho- horse will be fun for a, a little bit, but at some point, there's going to be a fatigue of these manufactured stories. It, this is my fear, Howard, and I'd love your perspective on it. There was already an attrition of interest in the regular season. Like people were just saying, wake me up when we get to the playoffs. Now, when people are going to have this extended pause without regular season games, whenever basketball comes back, I kind of feel like people are going to say, well, yeah, I mean, I got by binging through Netflix. I'm really only going to pay attention to the league during tent pole games with big rivalries or something that really matters or the playoffs. And I think as a business model, that's an issue that the league is going to have to confront moving forward. Do you have similar concerns? I hadn't really thought about it um, in those terms. Uh, you know, let me handle the media side of it first, which is that I do think there's a limit to how much we can continue to generate to keep fans engaged. And I, I worry for I worry for media in general during these times. Um, you know, it's obviously been a pretty volatile uh, industry for for quite a while now already, and. and um, we're, we're seeing a, a lot of, uh, effects way beyond sports on, in, on, on local media that are really, you know, just catastrophic. So, I, you know, but I, in terms of the, the fans and their interest will be there, especially the hardcore fans and for the NBA or any of the other sports, I think, I tend to think it'll be business as usual once we can return to business as usual, you know, whenever it's safe to have sports again, they'll resume and the fans, as long as they can be assured that the environment is safe to attend, and hopefully we have widespread universal testing by then, um, then then people will, will be back and, you know, they'll be engaged. I don't see why it would, would be any different. I sympathize with the concerns or I understand the concerns that people bring up like the regular season and do fans you know, or is, is there already, you know, some waning interest or people who just want the, the playoffs to get there? And obviously we've had all this discussion recently, even before the, the, the crisis hit, about whether or not the NBA should be, you know, reconceiving the whole season, the whole calendar. And, you know, should we start in December, go into the summer, um, all these things. Uh, they're all still worthwhile discussions. And the national ratings, of course, were, were down this season before things stopped. And, and we weren't, you know, nobody was entirely sure, I think, what to attribute that to. But this is giving the league a chance to assess all of that and, you know, perhaps come up with some long-term solutions that are partially based in the reality of having to start next season late, which is a possibility. And then maybe that becomes the premise for resolving some of these other issues about length of season or how the season's broken up, how to keep fans engaged. I don't have any great answers on any of that. Smarter people than me will try to figure that stuff out. I'll just be curious to see what they decide. Yeah, I'm actually kind of the opposite as Donovan there, where this to me just reminds me of the you don't know what you got till it's gone. And at least initially, I think there will be a surge of interest in regular season games that everything is going to be more interesting because people will remember exactly what it was like to have no sports. And sure, Netflix is great, but those kind of companies are also going to deal with disruption to industries, right? Like 
We've already seen shows get pushed back that are Netflix greenlit shows. I know network television has been disrupted by this. Like they can't go to work either until you get testing. So what you're going to end up having is probably a lot of recycled content online and people still having to get very creative with the way that they do business as well. Like we see some of these shows, like I know the Colbert Report or Jimmy Fallon, they have to broadcast from their homes. Uh, You've seen the cast of SNL try to get together on Zoom chats and keep people engaged, but it's going to be a challenge across the entire content landscape, not just for sports, but for other industries as well. But the one thing sports is going to have is that, yeah, when they come back, it'll just be this immediate return to normal from a viewership standpoint. Like you're just going to want to watch it. You're going to be so interested in seeing something live and something new and having competition again. That said, like there, there are going to be things that change from this, right? Like I, I think you're right to the degree of, hey, people are still going to want to watch these games. People are still going to be interested in stories. But if there is something industry-wide or league-wide that you think could be changed because of this, whether it's like something like a schedule or uh, media access or f- the way that players distribute their own content, which was already pretty at a, at a pretty high level, but now we're seeing a lot of these Instagram live chats. Do you think that there's anything from this that has permanence or is there something that you're looking at and saying, you know what, I think that we're going to change how we do X. Oh, that's a great question. I don't have any, you know, bold predictions for what this means long-term. I wonder about a lot of things, right? Like I I wonder, are we ever going to get back to handshakes or are we going to decide it as a society that, you know what, as I think even Dr. Fauci has said this, like they were always a bad idea, (laughs) you know, I love them. You know, maybe we should just dispense with 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 that um, because it spreads even in a normal year. It spreads flu and all kinds of other stuff. You know, if we come back to sports, at least in the near term, with this still hanging around with the the threat of a second wave or a third wave re-sparking the whole thing. I mean, are we going to see people sitting in the stands five seats apart from each other and no handshakes, no high fives? You know, you're in an NBA game. There's so much physical contact anyway. The high five is probably the least of your concerns at that point. But I'm curious about what will feel normal and how quickly do we we get back to feeling like we can do just these things that we gave no thought to before, that were just part of our human interactions, right? Um, I think in terms of, of the way the league operates, there will be the interim period where there are going to be, you know, we're probably going to see games without fans at some point along the way here. I don't know how long that lasts. We may see some changes in the way uh, arenas operate, but I think that those will be things that are to get us through the crisis or the tail, what we hope to be the tail end of the crisis. I don't think they're permanent things. And I'll include media access in that. Um, You know, there's going to have to be, as there was right before the league shut down, they had created some boundaries and, and some distancing rules in recognition that this thing was a growing threat more so than any of us really knew, I guess. And when we come back, again, because it's not like this thing's going to be eradicated overnight, and the uh, vaccine, by all expert estimates, is probably a year away. So, you know, once there's a vaccine, maybe everything is 100% normal. Until the vaccine arrives, there's only going to be some percentage of normal. And that may include, I would, I would guess, some still some cautious policies that would keep uh, media distant, not just from the players and coaches, but from each other. Because we're often packed into locker rooms with, um, you know, right on top of each other as we're getting in these scrums around players or even in press conferences, you're sitting side by side. You see the White House press conferences now, they're all spread out. And so it's not just a matter of keeping, you know, the players safe from the great unwashed masses of the media. 
it's keeping us safe from each other because the whole point is to obviously stem the spread. And so even once the crisis is quote unquote over, it's not going to be completely over and there will probably still have to be some policies in deference to it for the short term. One of the things that it's been reported will be tough to repair after this is the relationship between Agent Zero and for the NBA, Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. And uh, empathetically, I can see why that would be difficult in that locker room, not deciding with my fellow Donovan. Have you heard any similar reports? Have you, have you heard similar things? Um, I, obviously, that's been reported. I have no particular insight into that dynamic myself. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't care to speculate on it. Um, but I would just say this in, you know, we've seen players, teammates, and certainly co-stars of that level in this league have their tensions over the course of NBA history. And then guys can, you know, they find their way back to each other. They find a way to make it up, find a way to, and you know, and guys don't have to like each other or respect each other all the time to be great teammates either. So something like this, I, I think especially in the absence of anything else going on, it causes a greater focus on it. And I'm not trying to diminish either the reporting or the seriousness potentially of that tension in that relationship. As real as it may be, though, it may become irrelevant because often that is the case in, in this league. Think, you know, Things flare up, things die down, relationships are patched up, guys move on. But certainly something that bears watching once the NBA season resumes. Yeah, it's it's really strange the way that his narrative has gone, right? Because at first he was the the biggest villain going. He's like responsible for shutting sports leagues down. There's the stuff that comes out that he was not only being cavalier with the microphones of media members, but also that in the locker room, he was going around and touching other guys' stuff and and making a point of his disregard for the virus in general. So yeah, maybe that's what that report is linked to. Again, yeah, it's, it's a little unfair to speculate, but then there's the secondary wave of Rudy Gobert is he's a relatable figure. Maybe not that he's a hero, but that his ignorance for this was shared with the, I would still say, majority of people that we were all not taking this seriously enough and that it propels all these leagues to shut down. And who knows how many spreads this stops from having people stopping attending sporting events and that overall what Rudy Gobert did ends up being this huge positive. And so, yeah, he's going to be this just... When we come back, the way that he is treated and the way that he is remembered, this feels like it's going to be much bigger forever than any defensive MVP award he puts up or even if he's able to get to a finals. Like, this is going to be the first sentence of Rudy Gobert's legacy. But he's the number one guy, I would say. Maybe you disagree, but in terms of how he is received after this is all said and done and this is over. But is there another guy... If you had to pick one player whose next couple of months of playing you're most interested in, who would it be? And is it just simply LeBron James? Let me answer the Gobert part first. Sure. Um, I guess I shouldn't assume too much on the part of sports fans or even sports media or anybody else. I would like to think that more rational thought will prevail when it comes to how we view Rudy Gobert, how we talk about Rudy Gobert, and how we remember Rudy Gobert in this moment, because somebody was going to be first, whether it was Gobert, whether it was Donovan Mitchell, and we don't know who Donovan Mitchell got it from. We don't know who Rudy Gobert got it from, and we don't know that any of Rudy Gobert's cavalier actions either caused him to contract the virus or to pass it on. We don't yep. know. We don't know any of that. And there's also growing evidence that there's a bigger concern with acquiring the virus through 
other means other than just simply touching something that, that an infected person touched. Like the virus doesn't live that long on surfaces. So we don't know. I would like to think that people will recognize the reality of this and also recognize the reality that if it weren't Rudy Gobert, it was going to be somebody. And Rudy Gobert, yes, the positive test, his him being the first, actually probably saved a bunch of lives because it caused the NBA to do what it had been dragging its feet on and to shut down. And not to, they were dragging their feet even on playing in front of no fans. They didn't even want to do that. And suddenly their hand was forced. The NBA did what it had to do and they should be credited, but they really had no choice. And that caused all the other sports to do the same. Again, if it wasn't Gobert, it was going to be somebody else. And it's only because he happened to be the guy that also was on camera being kind of cavalier about it that suddenly he's being demonized. And the idea that he would be more remembered for all of that than being one of the best defenders in the NBA for, you know, what will probably be the bulk of his career or being, a, you know, a centerpiece of a great Utah Jazz team that, you know, has potential in years to come to make deep playoff runs or maybe compete for a championship. It would be, to me, asinine to have that be the thing that defines Rudy Gobert's life and career. So anyway, rant over on that. When the season resumes, if it resumes, I don't think it's resuming with regular season games. I think that's a pipe dream. I think we will see at best some sort of condensed playoffs. And at that time, it, it's going to be the obvious things. Well, one, is the how bad is the basketball going to be? Because these guys are going to be rusty as hell in a way that we've never, ever seen before. Like, ever. <laughs> During lockout seasons, when guys couldn't play and they're off when they should be on, they're at least playing pickup. They're at mm-hmm. least going to the gym and, and, and getting runs in. They're at least able to do everything and have access to everything. They have access to nothing right now. A lot of guys don't even have access to a basketball rim. Um, So it's going to be months away from the game and then trying to get back in basketball shape and get your rhythm back, even individually, much less as a team. So the basketball itself could be horrendous. I don't know how many weeks they're going to give them, but I, I spoke to the trainer for the Houston Rockets recently or their director of care on my podcast, and he was saying, look, six to eight sessions, and I'm by six to eight sessions, I don't mean six to eight days, I mean about six to eight sessions over about a three-week span to get these guys ready to go. So we've got to build that time in, too. And then once the games go, yeah, it's the obvious things. Uh, what does LeBron, what, what does he look like? Can he still lead that Laker team to a championship after all this has gone on? Can the Clippers be the ones to come out of the West instead? Can Giannis get his ring and help cinch up what the Bucks hope is a long-term relationship there because I think it's pretty clear he, you know, winning a championship there now helps strengthen their case for him to sign the Supermax extension that he'll be eligible for whenever this season is concluded. So those are the obvious ones, but look, the, I, the, you know, I've, I've been one who said, I don't think the Bucks are a cinch to come out of the East. I still think Toronto and Boston have a case to be made and you know, maybe even Philly if they're healthy and, and got their heads on straight. So, you know, it, it'll be the obvious storylines when we get back, assuming we get back. Yeah, it just, this is the difficulty for me. Like, I I, I talked to Jonas Valanciunas today on our radio show, and when you mentioned, hey, how much longer can we talk about how guys are doing in quarantine? I was like, oh, I hope longer because I'm doing a daily show and every athlete <laughs> I've talked to is like, that's what we're going over. But yeah, he mentioned how the only hoop he has is his little kids, uh, like, I don't know, whatever Fisher Price version and that he's just basically <laughs> practicing on that right now and then he can't move around. Talked to Ines Cantor earlier in the week, same thing. He's like, yeah, I live in a small, tiny apartment. I can't even really get cardio in outside of a bike and I'm not yeah. shooting either. 
And so, yeah, there's probably a little bit of an advantage to guys who live out in in big spaces or have a basketball court. But I think the majority of these guys, you're right, they don't have access to this stuff. But they're not going to be able to be given the ideal situation. It's just it's so hard to foresee what it's going to be. And, and I know that we're speculating something that could change. But what we know is that there's no vaccine coming for at least a year, right? And even that would be optimistic that most people are saying that it would be closer to 18 months. But the NBA is not going to take 18 months off. So is the ability to test players, have tests that are reliable that you can turn around quickly so that if you do ask guys to play in, you know, small gyms, no fans, quarantined areas, that you'll be able to find out whether or not the player has a virus within, let's say, an hour of being tested and that it's reliable and that you know they're not asymptomatic carriers, that that's the biggest impediment here, that that's going to be what starts these leagues back up, not a vaccine. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right in that nobody's going to want to wait as long as it's going to take to have a vaccine to go back to normal, whether it's sports or anything else. Um, I tend to think, as others have said, sports is the last thing to come back, at least sports as we know it, with you know massive stadiums and arenas filled with fans. But even just holding a game is difficult. I'm very skeptical of the whole bubble idea because, you know, first of all, it's not going to be all 450 players because, again, I think the regular season's done. But you still have... 16 playoff teams, assuming that they decide to still have those 16 times 15 players per team, plus all the coaches and trainers and medical staff and other support staff. And you need statisticians and scorekeepers and basketball operations. You know, it gets into the thousands pretty quickly in terms of the people that you need to support everybody. And if they're camped out in one place, you know, people have talked about Vegas, put them all in a hotel that also has a convention center where you can stage games, you know, put a, put a basketball court down. Okay, fine. But, you know, if everybody's quarantined and yes, now you need tests for everybody there and you can't have anybody leave and you need people to serve them food and cook and clean their rooms. And it just gets into the thousands really quickly and then nobody can leave. And if you're going to allow people to leave to go home to see their families, whether it's the support staff at the hotel or whether it's the players themselves or someone's wife is giving birth and you need to go home or, or there's something else. Well, then the second you leave, when you come back, are you in quarantine again? Are you tested again? Is it different if you already tested positive and you've got antibodies and now you're okay? Like there's just a lot of layers to this and it's complicated. And I don't think people in general and the, the public are going to be that tolerant of the NBA or any other sports leagues using hundreds or thousands of tests if they're not readily available to everyone by then. So first we need enough testing for everyone everywhere at every level of society before we say, well, for the good of, of the NBA to start playing, even with no fans, we're going to, you know, allow them to commandeer, you know, thousands of tests. It just doesn't, it's, it's not, it's not rational. Yeah, I agree. He said it well. I mean, I get what you're saying, JD, in terms of people in the league not wanting to wait that long. They may not have a choice. Like, this is not really up to the leagues at this point. It's up to, well, one, the virus, and two, politicians. And so there's two barriers to clear. There's a logistical barrier, which, Howard, you explained eloquently, but there's also a moral barrier, and it's going to be tough to justify to have medical professionals at games and security at games and abundance of tests at games when, you know, there are burial sites in different parts of North America right now. How about we end this conversation on a more positive note, or maybe... Please, because that just sent me into a depressed stupor. Like, I was just like, oh, my God. 
I hadn't even considered the people cleaning rooms. I was like, yeah, they're definitely not going to ask LeBron James to make his bed and tidy up after himself. Like somebody's got to come in and well, take but care somebody, of that. Forget even that. He can make his own bed, but somebody's got to come in and take the towels and wash the right. sheets and everything. Like, there's a, you know, like there, there's so much involved in this. Anyway, mm-hmm. go ahead. Well, and and the liability if any of those people happen to get sick and God forbid die right like in terms of what are the insurance premiums and what are the lawyers saying for all of the parties involved if a quarantine league happens and it it goes south so on a more positive note um today the day that we are taping this full disclosure on, on friday april 10th was going to be the day that vince carter had his last game in toronto against the raptors it is a small loss in the grand scheme of things but it is a loss that raptors fans didn't get to usher him out in his last year which i believe would have been you know a a roaring ovation but Nonetheless, there are many Raptors fans that still feel a certain type of way about Vince and still have never let old feelings kind of die. Howard, being outside of this market, but covering the sport, you know, throughout the time, what's Vince Carter's legacy as an NBA player and what's his legacy as a Raptor? And are those two things different or similar? I think that Vince Carter's legacy as a player is nothing but positive. I mean, this is a guy who came in as one of many who came in in that next Jordan generation where all these guys had this unfair label affixed to them and him more than many, even more so because of the way he played and his, you know, his, his just athleticism, his dunking ability. And of course, on top of that, going to, you know, being a North Carolina guy. And it was always an unfair way to, to brand him or any of the others that got the, the next Jordan label. And of course, Kobe possibly came closest, but most of them did not want that and and it wasn't fair to put it on them. And so we got past that stage, right? First it was, oh, well, Vince can do all these different things, and then it's the disappointment that he's not doing more, that he's not more like what Jordan was, or that he isn't an even bigger star, or isn't more of a winner, or whatever that means. So you get past that stage, where he's one of the best scorers in the league, one of the best players in the league, big star, but where people are disappointed that he's not doing more, can't get the Raptors farther, can't do can't can't make a bigger impression. And then you get to the you know different stages of his career, different stops along the way, um, where he just kind of settles into being a a really good player and just a really good teammate. And then from there to the final stage where he's been a great mentor who has not tried to ring chase, who has not sought out some personal spotlight, who has been content to play in places like Sacramento and Atlanta with rebuilding or young teams where he could just be a guiding light for younger players and has been a great ambassador for the league and is somebody who, you know, in in our line of work, always available, always thoughtful and a great all around guy. And so, you know, look, there'll always be people who think like they'll fall in that category of players who, well, we're disappointed because he could have been more. Yeah, sure. He was great, but he could have been more. But I think the totality of his career has to, to include all of these things. So I think he'll be remembered well, and I think he'll be remembered as one of the de- defining players of the you know early 2000s, especially. And as a Raptor, I never tell fans how they should feel about somebody. <laughs> you know, that's dangerous. You know, fans have their own passions and whatever. If they think a guy was disloyal or gave up on them or whatever, I, I'm not going to tell you how you should feel about him. Obviously, the situation soured. He forced his way out. And, you know, but whatever else came after that, you know, when things are softened up over time, as I think they probably have for most Raptor fans, if I can, you know, if I can generalize like that, you guys tell me if I'm wrong. But if it's softened, I think it's because, they've, you know, it's been a while. Also, they won a championship. But also, you know, 
in the grand scheme of things, as you start to look back over 20 years of history, you say, well, you know what? This is a guy who put the franchise on the map. It's one thing to, you know, plan an expansion team somewhere. It's another thing for, for it to succeed and, to, and carve out an identity and to have people, you know, uh, start to back it and want to be passionate about it. You're, the, the disappointment over Vince and the, the, the ill feelings about Vince there are directly proportional to how much he was originally idolized and beloved. And I think over time, what you start to feel more, again, tell me if I'm wrong, is just the appreciation for, you know what? He was the first NBA hero we had to call our own. And he did define that era. And he did define the early uh, years of that franchise and provided a lot of entertainment and a lot of wins along the way for that team and for those fans. So that's, that's the way I see it. I think you're right. I see it the same. I've described him as, you know, the, the first love of the franchise. And, you know, once you get married, you can look back and say, I may have done things differently at the time, but I can forgive my ex because I learned some things. But other people just don't forgive their ex. <laughs> this is a big relationship analogy show. <laughs> it's always yes. like everything comes back to like how it was with an ex or how it was with a relationship. Many Raptors fans, as you said, though, feel like, oh, he was great, but he could have been greater. Uh, same words cannot be said about you, though, my friend. During this pause, you have crushing out some great podcasts. Really loved the one a couple ago with Dave Finchio, co-founder of Bleacher Report, talking about radical changes. If everyone wants a thought experiment on what basketball may or should look like uh, when it comes back or just in general, take a listen to that. And uh, Mike Monroe is the most recent one. And man, uh, what a great Hall of Fame class. And they're probably not going to get the celebration that we thought they were going to. And Raptors fans specifically, uh, you talked to Damon Stoudemire, the first pick in the history of the franchise on a recent podcast. So make sure if you're listening uh, to this, take the time to subscribe to the full 48 with Howard Beck. Thank you. We really made your work. It's like you gave us 48 minutes. Really appreciate it, Howard. Uh, thanks again. <laughs> Absolutely, guys. My pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me. Be safe. Be well. Thanks, man. Same to you. So we've got some new things for you this NBA season. And no, it's not just Terrence Davis playing so well. We have a newsletter that will break that down and so much more. Our weekly newsletter from NBA editor Stephen Leung. It gives you original content, opinion, analysis. You can't find it anywhere else. And it is delivered directly to you right in your inbox. Sportsnet.ca slash newsletters. Just subscribe and we got you. Thanks again to Howard Beck. He's terrific. Always really insightful. Love whenever we get a chance to talk to him. So really appreciate him coming on. And yeah, I uh, hope everybody in Brooklyn and New York area uh, that they start to take a turn for the better soon. We, I, I want to touch on some of the stuff that we discussed there with Howard, with Vince Carter. And just your tweet today really resonated. And I know that it's not a time where there's a lot of content. So you're just looking at stuff and you're like, oh, right, this would matter. And this has kind of been one of the spins of content lately anyways. It's like, oh, today would have been X. And so we do like these rundowns of what it would have been like. But you said two things there that I wanted to expand upon. One is that Raptors fans don't feel like they really got their due or the way that they wanted to send it off. I know I'm paraphrasing you. I know I'm, I'm botching this a little bit, but... The tone of it was essentially that Raptors fans are not going to have this moment to celebrate Vince and to, to send him off into the distance or to the sunset. And my only thing about that is Vince has had 
so many of these Raptors appreciation nights. Like the first one happened was when he was in Memphis. Do you know what season that was in Donovan Bennett? What year that first like Vince Carter being appreciated by Raptors fans? Welcome back, Vince. The bearing of the hatchet, the video tribute, the tears in his eyes. I believe it was five years ago. Yes, five years ago. That's exactly right. You nailed it. And so we've just had a bunch of seasons where it's like he's been with the Grizzlies. He went to Sacramento. He went to Atlanta. And he's been on these like really, like no offense, but these toothless teams where the Raptors haven't been like in a playoff race and that they've been afraid of Vince Carter. And so basically every time that he's come through town, the story when you play the Atlanta Hawks is not even yet like, hey, they're playing Trey Young, or when they've played Sacramento, was it, hey, they're playing Buddy Heald, or when they were playing Memphis, that it's a big do-or-die game. It was mostly, hey, Vince is back here. Let's take a night to celebrate him. So do you not feel like, yes, it would have been nice to have that last time, but also secondarily that Raptors fans, they did get their opportunity to say goodbye because we kind of thought Vince was leaving for maybe a five-year span. Well, I'll reverse engineer the question, and I'll... Okay pose it back to you because that was the 20th anniversary where they were Mm -hmm. having these flashback Fridays and wearing the old uniforms and every time a former Raptor would come into town that was still playing they would honor him on the video board uh, at the top of the then Air Canada Center now School Bank Arena or they would you know bring alum sit them courtside and have a moment for them throughout the game and what was the moment that went viral was Vince started crying. The Mm -hmm. the fans went nuts. And maybe that was like a story after the fact because of Vince's emotion and the fans' emotion. But it wasn't a story going in. No one was like, I can't wait for this Grizzlies-Raptors game because Vince is going to get his due the same way that Doug Christie got his due 17 days ago. Like, that wasn't a story. It was going to be a massive story that in his last season in the NBA towards the end of the season so it's really it's going to be his send-off as a player because the send-off he was going to get in Toronto was going to far far be superior to the send-off he was going to get in his last home game as an Atlanta Hawk it was going to be a huge story on your show you would have talked about it for an extended period of time we would have had a bunch of content about it both myself and Faisal participated in different uh, pieces that were slated to come out as an homage to Vince that were not done by Sportsnet. Faisal was in a documentary, I believe. I was in a long-form story. People were gearing up and getting ready to shoot their this is the goodbye to Vince Carter shot for this game. But you didn't have that stuff earlier? like Because he's 42 years old and he's in Atlanta. Like That's last year. Well, I thought we had it. When he's 41 years old in Sacramento, I remember him sitting at the media table talking with Grant Napier about how he wanted to potentially be a media figure and that, you know, this was probably it for him at 41 years old. Like, I just, I'm not denying that. Would you have led your show with it? uh, I think I did every single time. This is kind of the point I'm making is that I think that every single time Vince Carter came back for his final game over the last three or even four seasons, even that last season with Memphis, he's 40 years old. Like Vince Carter is 43 right now. That's why there's some finality to this thing because it's like, okay, man, he's already been hanging on. The only reason that he's still in the league is because the Atlanta Hawks have 
a real problem with their ticket sales and he's been a good leader and he's been a player coach and he's one of the most freakish athletes we've ever had because he's at least able to be competent to this point. So like, I think it's a two things can be true situation that the Vince Carter thing is big. I'm not denying that, that you guys were doing secondary content pieces and that it would have been a huge focus in this city. I'm just saying it kind of feels like we did all these dry runs and we did do all these like look backs to Vince's career that at this point, I don't feel like it's this big loss. Uh, we didn't get to say goodbye to Vince that we didn't really lose anything because we've been saying goodbye to Vince for five years. That's my only point. What do you think the tickets would have gone for on the secondary market? Uh, I think they would have gone for a lot, but I think that I still believe that they were going for a lot when he was in Memphis. I don't think they were going for a lot in Atlanta, but yeah, it's still the Atlanta Hawks. I, I don't know, but I think that they were probably going to be above average, but this wasn't going to be like if the Lakers are in town or something like that with LeBron. The ratings would have been higher than for whatever other Raptors games were on the schedule that week. The tickets were going to be high on the secondary market. I think it was going to be as close to a playoff atmosphere before the Raptors were in the playoffs. I really think it was. And now it's just like, poof, it's not going to happen. Now, ultimately, what is going to happen is whenever basketball comes back in like 2022, game one, the Raptors will still be defending champions, but you can't really celebrate that. And so they'll have Vince in town. They'll honor him. And at that point, they'll, I don't know, put his jersey up in the Raptors or give him a statue or whatever. Give him a gold watch. Whatever it is that they're going to do, they'll do something. But uh, And that will be the night. But I think it was going to be big. I think it was going to be a moment. And the other thing is we didn't necessarily know those other times it was going to be his last game we kind of figured because of how old he was but we kind of said for him that it was going to be but he never clearly said it was going to be which is why he's continued to play so you really weren't sure this we knew it was going to be his last game and so that's why i think it would have been a bit different in terms of the spectacle but i think it would have been different for him because he would have been in the last week of his career playing basketball yeah, I think that that's a good point, too, is that this time we knew it wasn't just a guess. It does feel like we have been retiring Vince Carter for five years and that the Toronto debate has been happening even longer than that, that I'm sort of at the point where I'm kind of over it. If I'm if I'm terribly honest, I think you made a really great analogy to Howard Beck. And I feel the same way that looking back on this thing, that most people are either forgiving Vince Carter to a certain degree or have gotten over it. Or they never will, and it's a much smaller camp of people that are that. Or simply the fan base, which has a really, really young fan base and a young core, is either kind of too young to remember the acrimony of the end of it and knows Vince Carter as more, you know, the Vince Carter that we've seen for the last seven, eight, nine, ten years, rather than the half-man, half-amazing in Toronto, and that is just such a bygone memory, that this is something that is more for people of our vintage and actually even, to be honest, for me, like a little bit older, like... When Vince Carter was doing amazing things in Toronto, I'm like not even in high school yet. Like I'm still pretty young. And so I don't have the most clear memories of this thing. And I think there has been a lot of relitigation as to what exactly happened, especially after the Vince Carter documentary uh, that, that aired on Netflix. All I'll say is that your relationship is apt to me for this reason. And this is kind of the Vince Carter legacy to me is that it's a really good reminder that if two people win, if two people are winners in a breakup, that the relationship and looking back on it as tumultuous as it may be 
can be viewed as a growing experience or as something that is looked back on fondly. Like if you, like you said, it's, there's a clear divorce here, right? The divorce happens in 2005 and it's bad for a really long time. He's booed every single time he comes with New Jersey. He's booed when he's here with Orlando. I think it changes a little bit when he's in Phoenix, but still a little bit of booing. At this point, the Raptors winning a championship changes everything because the Raptors are now living their best life. They're living a good life. Raptors fans have everything they ever wanted. They have respect. They had the Kawhi run. They've had Kyle Lowry stay. They have great memories of teams led by DeMar DeRozan. They have Masai Ujiri. The city has been celebrated. Everyone's kind of happy. We're in a good mood. We're looking back at a relationship that maybe had some downs and had a really bad breakup and saying, hey, it's okay because we ended up finding what we were searching for all along. And the same goes for Vince Carter is that he had enough time in his career that he was able to shift his narrative as well, that he stuck around long enough, that he changed his legacy from this athletic freak with his springs to this athletic freak who could last and play in the NBA until he was 43 years old and change the way that he's perceived as a teammate where he went from a guy that was a malcontent to someone who is one of the main influencers of a bunch of young guys on a bunch of young teams. So that's how I'm looking at this now, is that everything is all through the prism of time. Everything is through the prism of everyone had success here, but that ultimately, I just don't think we'll ever be able to get a clear feeling of the Vince Carter truth because we're too separated from the time when it actually mattered in this city. See, I think the thing that, is not appreciated enough is that the championship changes everything. Yeah. It changes the perception of the franchise. Certainly it changes the self perception that the fans have about themselves and the franchise. And I think that's also why him coming back this year post championship mm -hmm. would have been different. There would have been a larger sampling of the population that would have been able to welcome him and not felt some anger and if you scroll through the replies of that tweet there's a lot still a lot of anger I, I was surprised i probably shouldn't be there's still a lot of people who are very upset and using the relationship analogy and i'll, I'll answer the weekly question of what are you binging this past week i binge watched a show called couples therapy it's, <laughs> a, it's beautifully shot it's basically it's exactly what it sounds like it's a docu-series where i believe let's say five couples go to this therapist, the relationship counselor, as a couple, they work through their problems. And you can see like maybe bits of yourself in some of the characters, bits of your relationship, but it's everything's on the table. Like not Instagram celebrities um, is, is also fascinating because I, I, I wouldn't want the public to see uh, my personal relationship therapy. But the point is <laughs> when there's an emotion, it's not just about an action that you're mad at or a person. You have to unpack well, what's behind that emotion. So in this case, the emotion that Raptors fans have to Vince Carter is anger. So let's unpack that anger. It, anger is really a wasted emotion like it's not productive unless you're in a fight or flight response and you're using it to save your life there's a quote and i'm paraphrasing it i'm butchering it but the quote goes something to the likes of being angry at the world is a waste because the rest of the world doesn't know that you're angry at it like if you're angry at you know the government's handling of covid19 or your employer for letting you go i mean you can feel that way but if they don't know that you're not really impacting them you're only really impacting yourself so raptors fans were so angry at vince carter for what they perceive he did to them personally and they've had this pent-up aggression for so long while well, Vince has gone to a thousand other teams and played and had a good career. But let's unpack the anger. Why were they angry? 
because there's other people who left. Damon Stoudemire left before, in, in I would argue, a worse fashion. Chris Bosch left afterwards. T-Mac left right before Vince, and T-Mac... T-Mac left as a free agent when the team was was primed. At least you could look at Vince's case and say, man, this organization was a mess. I would have left too. T-Mac left when things were good. So why are you angry at Vince specifically? Because you thought you were on the way to a championship team and the brightest star in the game, and you feel robbed of that. It's not even so much you're angry at him. You're angry that you never got that championship. You never got to the mountaintop. Well, now you did. Now you do have lovable stars all-stars, the best players in the game. Now you do have a ring. So now there's really no need to be angry unless you just like being angry. And so that's why I think this time would have been different because everyone has the closure. You have the championship. You understand that without Vince, the franchise may not even still be around to win a championship, but they certainly were able to win one without him. He wasn't beholden to them and stealing their opportunity, their one and only opportunity to have a great American star or win a championship. And so that's why the analogy is, okay, you found your person, you've gone on, you've got married. And so I could look at my high school crush and say, yeah, we had a bad breakup, but I hope you're happy. And I want to thank you for the time that we had because there was more positives than negatives, but I'm still not mad at you anymore because I'm living a good life. And that's why I think this year would have been different because there's a banner in the arena that says, yeah, we've moved on, we've won, but thank you for helping us get to where we got to before we won. Yeah, the Raptors put a ring on it, and the other relationship analogy is also just like the, I don't know whose song it is, I know Rod Stewart sings a version of it, but I feel like it's done by a billion different people, but it's like, the first cut is the deepest, and it's like, yeah, I don't even know if Rod Stewart sings it, to be honest, now that I think about it, I'm like, eh, I'm not 100% sure on that. But But this is not even the first cut. No, he's the first cut. Are you? I see. I don't Damon see Damon as the first cut. No, but maybe you're too young. But Damon Sotomayor is the first cut. Like I am, and I'm not because like I know Mighty Mouse was here, but like Mighty Mouse didn't resonate. I know he had the rookie season. I know he beat MJ, but he didn't resonate like Vince. Like Vince was the first star that was like, "Hey, man, this guy's a, not just an all star. He's a superstar." And there's something different about having a superstar in the NBA than there is about having a good player, which is what Damon Stoudemire was. He was a good player. And he that's was rookie it. Of the year. Yeah, he was a good. There's got lots of guys. So was Michael Carter Williams. Like I don't well, think not that lots of guys. One guy a year. I know, but I'm just saying Michael Carter Williams has been rookie of the year. Malcolm Brogdon has been rookie of the year. Like I'm just saying that guys have been good players, but I don't think Damon Stoudemire's career was ever defined in Toronto. It wasn't. It was defined with the Jailblazers, if anything. And well, I just because he left so early for sure. But he left, and he left early, and there's no doubt about it. But when he left, it really was a pardon the pun, but a Mickey Mouse operation. It wasn't a Mighty Mouse operation yet. When Vince Carter left, you mentioned it. It's like the organization was dysfunctional to a degree, but they had started putting butts in the seats. Fans had started to build around this organization. Well, they had done some had winning. he had started putting butts in the seats. He had like, started putting butts in the seats. But like the team it, it, did. it wasn't because of Rob Babcock why the yeah. building was full. But it was because of Vince Carter. But the Raptors had made smart moves. And the T-Mac won doesn't really hold water to me as much because T-Mac had to go in order to flourish because he was in the shadow of Vince Carter and he wanted to go to a new destination. And the Raptors, quite frankly, didn't even put together a good pitch for Tracy McGrady. Like they just botched that one as an organization. He was not meant to stay here. So like Vince to me was the first cut because he was the first one that was loved. He created Raptors basketball as more of a, hey, you just need to buy these tickets to get to a Leafs game. Like that's what the Raptors were for so long. It's like you got to buy Raptors season's tickets. It was an embarrassment. And then Vince Carter comes along and he completely changes that. And so I think there's two things with the Vince legacy is that one, 
that the relitigation of the way that he left to me is at this point just it it feels false. Like Vince forced his way out and he set the franchise back years. And that's why people are so mad about it. They had to trade him for a guy that wasn't willing to come to Toronto. And yes, you can say that's also on the Raptors, but he also did force their hand and made it so unbelievably toxic that they couldn't keep him a day longer. So part of it is on the organization. There's no doubt about it. It's like the Wayne Gretzky thing where Wayne Gretzky says that before the Oilers traded him, there was another opportunity for him to stay and blah, 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 blah. And they've done the same thing with Vince. And I just don't think that really that stuff is true and that while there might be a portion of it that is the real truth is that that guy wanted out of here the real truth was the guy started taking games off the real truth was that he was telling Richard Lewis what they were doing on inbound plays and everybody knew how upset he was in the moment and so like yes it takes two to tangle was the organization perfect no but fans root for the laundry they don't root for the individual and their hearts were broken and so I'm okay with people who haven't forgiven Vince for that. I personally don't have the energy to focus on, you know, like you said, I don't have the energy to be mad at Vince Carter anymore. Like, I just don't have it. Like, I don't think I ever was overly mad at Vince Carter. But I I just think that there's this, that Toronto's anger for Vince and the way that that breakup happened and the fact that it had to come full circle has resulted in Vince Carter becoming, in my opinion, arguably the most overrated player of all time. Like Vince Carter was really good in Toronto. He has that one season where it's what, 27 and 27, four and five. And I just don't think there's anyone that's ever been helped more in the history of the game by a skills competition. Like Michael Jordan had his big moment, but he became Michael Jordan. Larry Bird has the big three point competition moment, but he's Larry Bird. Vince Carter never won anything. He was never the best player on a championship team. His expectation was way too high, as Howard Beck said, because he came from North Carolina and he was a springy player and everyone was trying to point to who the next MJ is. There was an obsession with that at the time. But Vince had a couple of seasons where he was a really, really good basketball player, where he was one of the top five, six guys in the league. But that was really only like two or three years. The rest of it, like he's a fringe top 10 guy. He was never really the greatest defender. He was a good scorer. He didn't really have a secondary part of his game that was like overwhelmingly great. It was his athleticism and his three-point shot. And those were good things. He could get to the basket. He could finish with the best of them. But the dunk contest and the legacy in Toronto in terms of the acrimony of the split, I just think has resulted in this mythos that Vince Carter was one of the you know, most important five players of his era, the most important 10 players of his era. It's like, how many years would you have drafted Vince Carter fifth, top five in the NBA? How many times would you have taken him top six, top seven? Like there's like a two, three year span. He was really popular. He was really popular from dunking. He was one of the best dunkers ever, one of the best in-game dunkers ever. Still, to me, has the best slam dunk competition, period. But overall, you look at the entirety of the career, and to me, the legacy is is the longevity more than it is the peak. I mean, he's a Hall of Famer, so... Sure, he's a Hall of Famer. Who isn't a Hall of Famer? Mitch Richmond's a Hall of Famer. You want DeMar DeRozan in the Hall of Fame. Like, I I don't know. Everything's a Hall of Famer. I I don't think I ever said DeMar DeRozan's in the Hall of Fame, but... For people to say, oh my goodness, he didn't reach his potential. He was traded on draft night for Anton Jameson. Would you have preferred mm-hmm. Anton Jameson? Like Michael no, for sure. He's better than Anton Jameson. was the first overall pick, followed by Mike Bibby, Rafe LaFrance, then Anton Jameson. Like, so if, if he was the top five in any year, that would have been the win because in his own draft year, he was picked fifth. So I just believe that if you're a Hall of Famer, if you are one of the best players of your era by any metric you by definition you're not a disappointment no no i didn't say he was a disappointment though i asked you if he's overrated that's all you can be a hall of famer and be overrated like i think kobe bryant's overrated like i i think that there's lots of players who get overrated and i don't mean that as disrespectfully to kobe bryant i just think that yeah tim duncan was the best player of that era 
and that Shaquille O'Neal was the better player on his first championship teams. I'm just asking you, like, do you think if Vince Carter, not that he's disappointing, he's had a great career, no doubt, he's a Hall of Famer, but do you not think that he's slightly overrated? No. I think he was a cultural movement for, Mm -hmm. like, four years. Led Sports Center in the United States, mind you, the, the Sports Center that's spelt differently, every night for a two, three year span national TV games in Canada, which was not a thought because there's no local market in Canada, had shoes that many people wanted for two different brands. We were out here running to buy and ones because of Vince Carter, not because of the and one mixtape. We never bought the Pumas, but the and ones and the Nike shocks are still some of the beloved signature basketball shoes of all time. He had a massive impact. Not to mention how many rap songs has he referenced in? How many rap videos has he been in? His impact in terms of people saying this guy's box office appointment viewing at his height is almost, to be honest, unrivaled. Mm-hmm. I just think that we're looking at two different things. Like I, I would never say that he's overrated from a cultural standpoint. Although, actually, you know what? Uh, I'm going to renege on that. I think that at this point, he gets treated in a way like he's James Naismith, that basketball wouldn't have existed in this country without Vince Carter. And I think that's a bit of an overstatement. But no, culturally, he's a massive, massive basketball icon in this country forever and ever and ever. And yeah, if you do want to say, hey, who was the most impactful player? Who changed the way that Canada basketball was more than anybody? Like, yes, of course, there's grassroots levels. Of course, there's people that are going to be diehards that point to the Eli Pasquale's. There's going to be people who point to Steve Nash. But for the Toronto Raptors and for the legitimization of that franchise, no player will ever or has ever had a greater impact unless you say it's Kawhi Leonard because they won the championship and because of the reach he has. And here's the thing about this conversation about Vince Carter and his legacy. There's no real right answer. There's going to be people who feel really upset, people who are going to be upset that they didn't get the chance to say goodbye and thank him in person. One of the many impacts of the season being put on pause and COVID-19. Speaking of put on pause, I've got a new podcast coming out with Richard Dice, Sports on Pause, brought to you by us here at Sportsnet. Please subscribe. And like you do with this one, I urge you to like, favorite, and share it as well. JD will be continuing to host Good Show every day on the Fan 590 right here in Toronto. Wherever you are, stay safe, stay inside, please, and continue to consume our content and love some basketball. Take it easy.